Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week, my guest is actress Valerie Hubbard. Valerie's credits include roles on Castle, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., one of my favorite Marvel shows, How I Met Your Mother, Glee, American Horror Story, Workaholics, True Blood, 90210, ER, Desperate Housewives, and she even voices Hot Rhonda in the game Dead Rising 3. In addition to acting, Valerie owns the company Actors Fast Track, where she consults with working actors about their career paths. Having navigated her own career, she knows the pitfalls and successes of the path and how to avoid the one and create the other. She gives actors the tools they need to get recognized. In her newest book, Rule Breakers, Changing the Way Actors Do Business, she shows professional actors how to create and operate their acting career as a successful business and how to move from being stuck into the limelight. I really enjoyed this conversation because we we get into a lot of interesting psychology of both being an actor and, and being on the set of a movie. We even talk a bit about the potential dangers on a, a movie set, which I found to be a really eye-opening, kind of interesting conversation for me. If you enjoy the conversation, make sure to hit the subscribe and or follow button and leave a kind comment or rating where applicable. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Valerie Hubbard. Valerie, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? I am doing great. A little chilly uh, in uh, the East Coast, but (laughs) still good. (laughs) Oh, yes. I'm New Yorker and uh, we're we're waiting the onslaught, apparently, of of snow that is supposed to be coming our way. (laughs) But luckily for us, we get to stay inside and and have this wonderful conversation, which I've very much been looking forward to. So Something that I love, I love speaking to professionals about their work, and I just love learning about how professionals kind of approach their their craft here. And so um, we're very fortunate that we get to speak with you about acting and that profession. But uh, I'm also always curious about the, the human element behind this. So I'd like to actually begin by asking you, what drew you into the profession of acting I, well, I, I just was really struck by what you said about the human element. So I definitely want to say something about that. But what drew me in was way before I remember, I was three years old and I threw a lot of temper tantrums as a child. And the classic one was I threw myself down the basement stairs. Um, my mother thought I was dead. And so she uh, enrolled me the next day. I grew up in Kansas. She enrolled me the next day in creative dramatics and, uh, and I just loved it. I mean, I think, you know, I, um, it's the only thing I really ever wanted to do and everything that I did growing up led to me doing that. I mean, I, I auditioned for acting schools when I was 17 and I went right to a conservatory when I was 18. So it was the only thing that I ever really was super drawn to and wanted to do. But um, but I want to say something about the human element, because one thing that's really important to me in the craft of acting or that I've fallen in love with as an actress is the ability to play people that I might not necessarily agree with. And to be able to find their humanity inside of me. And I think that that's really important. And I think, you know, um, in a time in our history where people are so, you know, against each other and so on polar opposites to be able to find the middle ground and the humanity of a human being, even if it's something or someone that you completely disagree with in um, whatever their beliefs are, it's uh, that is what's really super special for me about acting. And I tend to play a lot of people that are on the other side of the tracks for me. Yeah, this is quite timely, actually. Uh, just yesterday in the classroom, <laughs> we were talking about um, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. And one of the, the lessons that we, we talked about is when you, when you ignore uh, an entire group, or an entire idea, just ignore it for your own, you, you tend to lose a sense of empathy for other human beings. And that's, it always seems hokey to say, but, but, the hokiest things are oftentimes the most true 
this idea that we we do need a lot more empathy today in general, being able to see the other person's position and at least say, I, I hear what you're saying and I and I understand why you're saying it. It doesn't even mean necessarily that you have to agree. But just to be able to make that human contact again is so important, I think. It's so important. And it's it's just so important. And um, because most of the time, you know, people are are coming from some place because, you know, we don't we we always judge our insides with other people's outsides, you know, and we're quick. I mean, I, I'm just going to speak from I'm quick to judgment, you know, um, and I'm always investigating like, you know, my own racism or my own, you know, inside of me. And I've been married to a black man for 30, 40, 35 years nearly. Um, and so, you know, I, I am always investigating that. And what is that? And why do I dismiss someone else or not, you know, and, and it really comes down to not understanding the full story and judging a group of people based on, um, you know, an outward thing, like one thing rather than an individual, you know, a connection to an individual. Absolutely. So, well, so early, you, you made me think of something that I had heard in um, Rob Lowe's podcast, believe it or not. He said that that early on, he, re- he can recall wanting to become an actor from the age of like five. And it was because he had seen a, a Dickens play, he had seen Oliver Twist, and he was just absolutely blown away by the entire idea of production and fantasy and play. And you mentioned as early as three, you wanted to know this. So uh, what were what were some of the early kind of influences then that continually drew you toward this idea? Do you have specific ones? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, I do remember, I do remember as that three-year-old going to the creative dramatics class and it was taught by a woman named Osythe Deersmith Moore. And she was this like little tiny petite redhead and she would wear matching hose, like pink with a pink outfit, with a pink purse, with pink shoes. And, uh, you know, to a child that's just like... (gasps) you know, candy, you know, and she had a big bag and we would draw a prop out of the bag and then we would make up a story. Well, so I was really great at making up a story when I was five in kindergarten. My father was a machine tool salesman. Well, a five-year-old doesn't even know what that means, right? So they asked me what my father did. And I made up this huge story about my dad was a fireman and he rode on the truck and he rang the bell. and you know, a woman from the class called my mom and said, I didn't know Max was a a fireman. And so, you know, I was, I was just someone that really, you know, loved to make up stories. And then I remember at the age of maybe 10 or 12, um, I would get up sometimes in the middle of the night and go in the family room. And we grew up in a ranch house. So if you turned on the TV in the family room, you couldn't hear it in my parents' bedroom, right? And I turned on the TV and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was on. And, um, and I remember watching Elizabeth Taylor and I was just like, oh my God, I want to do that. You know? And so that was something else that really it's probably like my favorite play. And, um, and so that was something else that really, you know, uh, and my parents took me a lot to the theater. Um, and I got involved very early on in a children's theater. Um, so I did a lot of children's theater. And when Helen Hayes came to town, when I was allowed seven years old to dedicate the new theater, um, I, and my sister were chosen to be the, the little girls that brought out flowers to her on the stage. And so, you know, there was a lot of things that really, you know, what, uh, you know, supported me towards doing that. And then of course, in, in high school, I guess, like, you know, I was in, even in junior high, I was kind of like the fat girl and I got teased a lot, but when I was on stage and I was in plays, everyone wanted to meet me and talk to me and be with me. So it gave me a level of acceptance that I, um, you know, I felt like left out because I was fat. And so. Well, how, how important was it 
to have that kind of support of the arts in your household? Oh, Hugh. Oh my God. Hugely important. I mean, luckily my mother was a musician and a music teacher. She stopped when she had us and my sister was a musician as well. And so my, my mother was someone that, you know, took us to the theater, took us to the ballet. We, my mom and dad went to symphony, you know? And so we, um, we were very, and we got to travel a lot. I mean, you know, people go, oh, you grew up in Kansas, but my dad was traveled a lot. And so they took us along once we, you know, were 12 and 13, they started taking us to with us on their trips. And when we, when we would go places, we, we wouldn't just lay out on the beach and, you know, we would go study whatever history was involved in wherever we were. So it was very much supported in my household growing up, the arts. And so very important. I mean, I think, you know, oh my gosh, that's so important to who I am and my house and the artwork I have and, you know, what I, what I love. And, you know, I'm just, I, I mean, well, just like so many of us in the last couple of years, I've inhaled tons of content. Um, so the, my wife had a similar upbringing in that she she moved around a lot and took a lot of trips, though, as well. And she and her family would always make sure to stop and see kind of local history wherever they were. And those are some of still to this day, her favorite memories is having those moments with the family and learning something together. It might not even be that they necessarily remember the history itself but they remember the act of being together and learning, which I find fascinating. I mean, she's a, a, a college instructor as well, just like I am. And so we both kind of grew up in that same uh, household of let's let's learn and appreciate something together and, and just how important that really is. Yeah, that was that was really important. I remember in Hawaii, um, you know, my, my, my mom did all the research on the missionaries and all the people that came to Hawaii and she read the book, you know, the Hawaii book. And, uh, and so, you know, we talked a lot about that. And then, um, I remember in Atlanta, you know, learning about the civil war and, and what it was and, you know, and I, you know, my mom really made an effort and we also traveled a lot to places in Kansas um, and, you know, learned about different things in Kansas and, and different like the Flint Hills and Eisenhower and different things there. And so we did a lot Washington, DC. I, I remember, you know, going through the Smithsonian when I was 12, 13 years old and seeing, um, you know, all of that. And, and, and I always love going back and seeing the new museums that open as part of the Smithsonian. And so, yeah, it's, it was always great. You know, my, my mom always made sure, especially my dad was frequently working. And so my, my mother would take us out and, you know, show us stuff. So. (laughs) Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say, um, so you, you have this rich background, you really want to do it. And so you start to, to go into the profession was there an actor you worked with early on, uh, early in your career that sort of helped you or taught you either about the craft or the business a little bit to help guide you? Well, oh, wow, just, uh, I mean, a million. <laughs> but, um, okay, so uh, Carla Burns, who recently actually passed away this last year, she um, won... Um, uh, the Laurence Olivier Award, uh, African-American. She did Showboat on Broadway. Um, and she grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And she was someone that um, when I was really young and I did member of the wedding and I wasn't Frankie, but I was just a small little part, but I would watch, she was, you know, um, the the lead in the play and I watched her and I learned so much from watching her and then when I got ready for acting school she was the one that coached me to audition she was the one that coached me on my monologues um when I was 12 I did a production of uh Sound of Music with 
Ted Wass, who is a very famous sitcom director, and he was Blossom's dad and in Soap. And and he played Captain Von Trapp. And he, of all the 12 children, he he knew kind of I was the one that was going to continue on with acting. So he gave me a brochure for the Goodman School of Drama, which is actually where I ended up going. So he was very um, much that. And so in 1990, I did a very important production of The Crucible at the Roundabout in New York, um, directed by Gerald Friedman, and Arthur Miller was involved. And Ruth Nelson played Frances Nurth. Ruth Nelson's career was ruined by Joseph McCarthy. And, um, and so, you know, that's what The Crucible is about, is the McCarthy hearings. And um, just watching her eight performances a week enter the stage and watch the simplicity of what she did every night before she walked on stage taught me so much about, you know, acting in theater is different than acting on TV and film. And so that was, uh, that was important. I mean, my acting teachers, uh, Dr. Bella Itkin at the Goodman, um, Bob Krakauer, Terry Schreiber, you know, uh, Brad Hanke. These are people that have changed my life, James Hallett, you know, these are people that have changed my life and taught me a, a deepness of acting. I also spent time in Poland during communism at Grotowski's Lab Theater, and that changed me. I mean, really changed me as a human being and as an actor and the level of deepness that it created in my acting, that was big. So, you know, I've had a lot of influences um, over the nearly 40 years I've been a working actress. And um, uh, yeah, oh, and, uh, Tom Keegan is this amazing director. He's probably the leading video game director in the world. And doing a video game with him is amazing. It's just like, you know, he does these deep improvs and, you know, and it's such, it's such a crazy work. And that's mocap where you wear the suit with the little balls on it. So that's been someone that's been very influential to me. So a lot of, a lot of people. Would you say that, that, cause, cause I kind of have a, a, a compound question here a little bit. How important is it? to both have mentors early on available to you, but also how important is it to be open to mentorship? Because I've got to imagine that there are sometimes uh, actors who are not as open to that. Yeah, I I mean, here's the, you know, I mean, because my business that I have is about, is about business, the business of acting. And you know, no one ever tells an actor that they're an entrepreneur. And so they go about their acting career like it's, it's you know, a one-man show. And you can't build a business as a one-man show. You just can't do that. And so it's so important to have mentors in your life for your business and for your acting, right? And, um both and people that you go to, because it's really, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bad information. And if you're just grasping at straws all the time and you haven't really set up your mentorship, I mean, I have my people, you know, I have, um, I've worked with coaches, life coaches and business coaches since the eighties. And that's really when coaching was born was the late seventies, early eighties. And I started working my first coach, Jay Perry. I worked with him for a, a 15 years. And then I worked with the Melissa McFarlane and Michelle Sism, Mir and Red Elephants, a company I work with. And so these are people that where I work with on my business and my life and my mental and, and all of that. And then the, all the acting coaches that I, that I mentioned earlier, I wouldn't be where I am without those people. I think it's so imperative to understand that you cannot do this journey in anything that you do alone. You have to have mentorship and guides. I mean, you know what you wouldn't go climb, climb Mount Everest without a Sherpa. But like I always say to actors, it's like, you guys are like, I'm like, oh, you're going to climb Mount Everest. 
And they're like, yeah, I'm like, so where's your air and where's your Sherpa? Oh, I don't have them. I'm like, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, you're going to die if you go up Mount Everest without a Sherpa. Um, but, you know, oh, no, I can do this. Have you done it before? No. Oh, uh, okay. Well, then I don't get how you think you're going to do it without help. That's yeah. really important. Valerie, did you have a specific moment in your career where you finished a project or a scene or something where you turned around and said to yourself, I can do this. I'm an actor. Wow. You know, that's so great question. Um, because I think a lot of times we don't, you know, so one person gives us a bad comment. We, um, we all of a sudden have, you know, don't think we can do something. So I think it's a gradual, you know, belief. Like if someone said some of the things they said to me when I was younger right now, I would laugh in their face, you know, because now I have a huge amount of proof. In 1985, I went to an audition in backstage for uh, Landscape of the Body by John Guare. Um, and I... It was, you know, it was like one of those things where people go, oh, don't go to auditions and backstage. They don't amount to anything. Well, I went to this audition and it was so organized. They knew what they were doing. I got called back. The director called me. She talked to me for an hour. She's like, this is a showcase. We're going to do only 10 performances. It doesn't pay. But, but she talked to me and I knew she knew a lot about acting and she hired me to play the role of Margie. So the first rehearsal, I go to this apartment on the Upper East Side and all these people seem to know each other. I'm like the outsider. And there's a girl and she's talking about her dad's new show on Broadway called Phantom of the Opera. And her name was Daisy Prince. And then there was another girl that wasn't in the show, but was there because it was at the director's house and her name, and she was going to Juilliard and her name was Laura Linney. And then there was another girl named Amanda Green. Her dad was Adolph Green and uh, Betty Comden, right? Like, so it was like crazy. I was like, oh my God, I think I just stepped into a gold mine, right? So I went down, I found the first payphone for you kids that are listening. These were things that used to be on the street. And I called my boyfriend. I said, I think I just stepped into a gold mine. So during the course of the show, I met John F. Kennedy Jr. Every night I got wined and dined by Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince. I mean, just like on and on and on. It changed the course of my career. And, and I played this very pivotal character. And John, who I became friends with, John Guare, later on told me, you know, that was like a pivotal, that's the pivotal role for me in the play. Right. And when he saw that production of landscape, he wrote extensively about it was the best production of landscape of the body that he had ever seen. And so, you know, it was great. I mean, like, you know, like John F. Kennedy Jr. was like, you're such a good actress. How'd you get into acting? Like just it was like it was like heaven or whatever, you know, for these this short amount of time that I did this play. And it continues on in. 10 years, 10 years after that in 1995, I got cast in Moon Under Miami as the lead opposite Kate Walsh, which was a play that was going to come to Broadway, but it didn't. But Red Grooms did the sets. And it was, you know, again, John Guare rewrote it for me. And it was our connection continued from that. And so I just think that, you know, yeah, it's it's that for me was a really um big moment for me in my, my career. And it was only a year after I got out of acting school. Wow. I, I, you know, I, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit here too, because now we'll start getting a little bit into the craft part here. If you don't mind, you have, <clears throat> you are, are very versatile in the sense that you have Roles that range from horror, uh, American Horror Story, uh, Resident Evil, right? You you also have more serious roles as well. Things like in dramas like ER, and you have even comedy. You move into comedy with Workaholics, and as you just mentioned, you're working in video games as well in in Wolfenstein too, right? So here's my craft question: What genre? do you think is most difficult 
to prepare for? Is there a specific genre there that's more difficult than others to prepare for? You think overall maybe for for actors? I think comedy is harder. And the reason comedy is harder to audition for and prepare for, because actually my job is auditioning, because in comedy, it's about the rhythm and it's about hitting the joke. Right. And so it's about the rhythm when you're doing a drama like Resident Evil Extinction or True Blood or whatever, you know, all you have to do is sit in your trailer and dive deep into your own personal hatred or whatever you're bringing to the table to hold up that role. Right. And so it's always for me, I was taught sort of in the Strasbourg method where you use your personal knowledge of what. Um, what you know about this story. So when I auditioned for Resident Evil Extinction, you know, I just sat on the courtyard and, and tapped into my hatred. And so by the time I walked into the room, I was full on evil hatred, right? And so that's easier for me than making sure, because it's nerve wracking hitting the joke. Even if you've hit the joke seven nights a week, you know, on the eighth night, you're like, and then sometimes like, you know, cause I did dinner theater and I did like a lot of comedy on stage as well. And it's like, there's times where like you hit the joke and it's just like, it doesn't, you don't get the same laugh that you got the night before or whatever. And so, you know, I think that's harder preparing for, but like once you're on the ride, it's fun. Like I did a lot of Disney and the great thing about Disney is the crew is allowed to laugh as you're shooting because they just put that as part of the laugh track. And so, you know, it's fun because you get to hit the joke and, you know, and the crew laughs at you and they like you. And, you know, that's fun. Like once you hit the stride and you're doing it, but I think it's harder to prepare for comedy. This, uh, rolls right into a, a, another question that I had for you as well. So this is perfect. Uh, I was rewatching an episode of Workaholics with you in it where you are in the the pews of the church at a funeral. And it is a hysterical scene. The uh, Just to set it up, you're, you're in the funeral. A family member has died. Adam, Adam Devine is in there. He's doing his thing up front. He looks like he's having so much fun just kind of, you know, doing what he does. And then to add to it in walks Jack Black. And they're both just hysterical. But what I really enjoyed was when Jack Black looks at you, and I'm going to quote this <laughs> because it's just perfect. He says to you, Anne Holly, you're usually down to your G-string right now and here's the craft part the look on your face you have this wonderful look of a mixture of embarrassment and acceptance it's like yeah that was me <laughs> like yeah that's that's kind of right and so my question has to do with when you are preparing for just a reaction how much preparation, what's the balance between preparation beforehand and also being in the moment to play off that energy that the other actor is throwing at you? <laughs> that was Adam Devine's birthday that day we shot that. And he was acting with his idol, Jack Black. <laughs> Jack Black is the funniest person ever, ever. Um, and working with the boys and workaholics, um, they, um, you never know what is going to come out of their mouth. So that is ultimately easy because you just have to be present in the moment and know who your character is because it, so he said something different every time. And so, you know, and there were a lot of us that I was like really just trying not to laugh is a lot of what I was trying to do because he came in and he's like, Hey, it's a funeral. And so from then on any funeral I've been to, I think, Oh, we're at the funeral. Right. And, um, <laughs> and so that was easy. I mean, I think that, you know, listening is, um, is something that they don't really teach a lot in acting school. I don't feel like they teach it well enough. And, and like when I first started, 
I wish people could, you know, like when I first started, I was like trying to listen, right? Which never works out well. Um, so the thing that really helped me with listening was um, Viola Spolin, uh, imp- who is the founder of improvisation, because improvisation is about, it's not about standing over the corner and thinking about what I'm going to come on and say that's really funny. It's about responding to what's in front of me. It's like everyone else is giving me what I need. And so it's like this give and take, give and take, give and take, receive, receive, give, receive, give. And so it's like you do all these exercises that teach you that in Viola Spolin's book and improvisation. And so taking an improv class helped me to become a better listener because I was, I used to be scared of improv because I thought it was like, oh, you have to be really funny. And I didn't think I was that funny. And you have to stand over in the corner. But that's not true. Like true improvisation is about taking what the other person says and um, and 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 spitting it back out and, and upping the stakes. The one of the best people I've ever seen do that is Amy Poehler. I mean, I met Amy when she first came to New York before she was famous. And And we did a couple of things together. We did. And one thing that we did, we did the uh, Conan O'Brien together and she played Conan O'Brien's sister. And I, and I was just, I was a Rosie O'Donnell uh, audience member in the wrong audience. You know, that was like that. And I watched her stand up in the audience with the headgear that she would wear, Conan, you know, and she just, like the thing that made her brilliant and I watched her in Upright Citizens Brigade early on when they first came to New York before they were famous. It didn't take them long. It took them a year. But, um, you know, she would just she had no limitations, no walls. Right. Whatever was given to her, she would blow it out and come up with the most obscure crazy things. Right. And just go for it. And that, and she's just brilliant in that way. Betty White, brilliant, you know, brilliant in that way. Like the best comedians, that's what they do. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know anyway, so that's a long answer, but it was, it's, it's, um, that was easy because he, everything he said was different every time. (laughs) So what's it like then when you're in those moments and you're seeing, on the spot, the background, all that work, whether it's Jack Black or Amy Poehler, as you mentioned, you see all that work that's getting put in. Is there, does it make you view the final product differently? Like when you, when you see, let's say it actually, whatever the cut is, the actual cut that goes, does it alter a little bit the way that you view that final cut? Um, It's not as much for me because I am someone I'm sure it does for actors. And there's a lot of actors that don't even watch what, and a lot of times I don't watch what I do either. So I'm just going to say that, you know? Um, But I think that, you know, I'm someone that if I'm really into the show, I remember this is really for true blood. Like I, when I got cast in true blood, I hadn't seen it. And I was in the second season. So I watched the first season and I was like, I told my husband, I'm like, I want to live in Bontemps. And he's like, you're working there. And I'm like, I know, but I want to live in the idea of the show. <laughs> like it was, you know, you, I mean, you wanted to go to Bon Tom and you wanted to meet all those characters and you wanted to be a part of them. And, and, and so for me, I get carried away by the story and I'm just as, you know, I'm just as fooled as Joe Schmo is. That's not an actor. I mean, I get scared at scary movies and I've been in scary movies. I know it's fake blood. I know all that stuff, but I get, I'm like, no, don't go in there. You know, like I'm, I'm that person. So for me, not as much. It's, it's a, now, you know, I mean, there's some shows I probably should, I won't say who they are, but there's some shows that I've done that I didn't watch what I did. Cause I, I didn't really watch the show. And so, you know, you know, it's just not my thing. Yeah, at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it is a job, right? And there are times when, you know, if I teach a certain class or whatever, and I'm like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to think about that one again. <laughs> let's not, you know, let's just, let's move on to the next one, you know, that kind of a thing. So yeah, it's, it's work. And, but there is something, there is a tremendous amount 
of because kind of what we're talking about here has a lot to do with psychology as well, because there is a psychology to acting. But more than that, it seems to me, having spoken to to other actors, that it almost feels like if you're in the profession long enough, it should almost you should almost get a conferred a degree in psychology for how much you have to manage and balance between whether it's your own or whether it's the amount that you have to deal with from externally, from other people, balancing that out. I want to enter into the, a discussion here of the psychology of the actor. And, and I want to do so with maybe first might be a little bit of a, um, this might seem like a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious about this. You were in, you were in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Marvel. And in this scene, it was at a wedding and everybody is toasting with champagne to the bride and groom and everybody's drinking, but you speak to the waiter and you say, hey, do you have anything stronger? And so you're not drinking the champagne. And of course, in that very Marvel, wonderful way, it turns out that there's something in the champagne and there's this big, you know, death scene for everybody around you. Everybody's dying horribly, you know, gruesomely. My, my psychology question here is we always see on TV actors say things like, oh, it's a death scene. I have a death scene or, oh, I'm the only one who's alive. Does that actually carry any weight? psychologically for the actor to be in that moment because it really is in that scene everyone around you is dead and there's just you does that matter um that is a weird question yeah (laughs) so here's the thing most of the time like i've been shot in the head i've been eaten by a dog i've been blown up like i've had all these different death things happen to me in movies and, and, or people following around me. And most of the time, what you're thinking about as an actor in that moment is, uh, is, is the, you know, is the legitimate, like technical stuff that you have to deal with. Like when I got shot in the head, there was a squib on my head that blew up and they said, your head goes back and comes down. That's all that happens. Your head goes back and it comes down when you get shot in the head. So I was just thinking of that. Like I was wanting, because, you know, it's huge to put you in that makeup and do the shot. It's like a, it's like a million dollar shot. You you don't, you, you're, there's a pressure to blow it. Right. Or to where everyone's falling around you and you want to make sure you don't fall. Someone doesn't hit their head and, or, or you're in someone's way. So that's the kind of thing that you're thinking of is the, the, um, you know, that is the, is the event itself and making sure that you do it right as an actor, the techna technology of it, you know, the stunts, you know, you're thinking of the stunts and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and a lot of times, like when I was eaten by the dog in Resident Evil Extinction, the, the dogs, you know, um, when that happened, when it jumped up, it was not me. It was a, a stunt person um, that did that. But, you know, you have to bring in the fear. So I, I think, you know, you tap into the fear, right, of, of what that fear is, right? And so I've, I've had a lot of that happen where I'm fearful of get getting shot or eaten or whatever it is. And, um, so, um, it's just a moment, you know, and like, really, I think it's like hoping that it's not fake and that you're really invested in the fear, um, that, cause that's mostly what it is, um, is when people die around you, or if you've ever seen anyone die that that, or like I was, I was in a car wreck not too long ago. It's like, you know, that crunching sound when like, you know, am I alive? Am I alive? You know, that fear, like if you could capture that look on your face when the car hits you or whatever it is. So I think that, um, yeah, that's the answer. I hope that helped. Yeah. And <clears throat> Part of that too, I guess what I was curious about curious about also was when we when we see this on on TV played out in in a, in a meta way. In other words, like it's an actor playing an actor on TV. It's usually like that they'll be reading a script or something and they'll get excited because they see, oh, I get to die in this scene. It is is there any truth to that that actors get excited when they read a script for them? 
that says that they have a death scene. Yeah, not, I mean, um, I guess I, you know, for me, not so much about the dying as, um, I, you know, like when I got to pull out the sawed off shotgun, that was a blast, you know, uh, you know, and I was like, Oh, you know, or when I guess, you know, cause that movie where I got shot in the head was very early on. It was like my first big movie. And I, and, and I was mostly just like terrified because like, Oh my God, I get shot in the head. Like, Whoa, how am I going to do that? Like, that's really, so for me, it's like, I get to die in the scene. I think, um, uh, I, for me, it's not that big of a, I mean, my, mine is like the scary of, <laughs> of like, how's that going to happen? And Oh my God, you know, <laughs> that's interesting. So yeah, you go right to the technical part of this the the logistics of what's going to happen and and where do i fit into the logistics that's very that's fascinating to me that's actually really interesting that that's where where you would go so it is a little bit different than than maybe than what we would see in that way on tv yeah i think you know it's also because my very first like i think it was like my second second or third movie in my career so very early on it's the movie i got shot in the head and that and so for me, like I dealt with that early on, right? And it was a, a it was a an independent low budget movie. It was R- Richard Lewis, the comedian, was the star, and the the bullet came out of the gun. It went through a basketball. It went through a basketball backboard and then into my brain, my head. And so I had to be like, you know, they had a camera that came all the way across the auditorium and stopped right here. And then they did a cutaway of the bullet blowing up and, you know, my, and the slow-mo of my head going back and coming down. And so it was all very technical. And also they put that squib on my head, which is like, basically they put like explosives on your head. And then they left me sitting there with it on, which they should never do. They would never do in a big budget film. And they got in trouble for that. My SAG rep was there and it was, you know, it was a deal. So I think I, because I dealt with that early on, I think that it wasn't as hard um, for me when I, then I subsequently, when I did a ton, did, adults always get like on Disney, I've been thrown through a wall. I've been blown up. I've been stabbed by a swordfish. I mean, like you name it, it's happened to me on Disney. And so I think like, you know, you, I was better at that once I got to that. Cause I'd already done it in my very, I'd had it happen to me early on. So I was used to that. You mentioned the, the squib part and you mentioned how you knew even in the moment, yeah, this probably shouldn't just stay where it is this entire time, how much say does an actor have really in terms of the the safety of a of the environment? I, I bring this up actually also not I know um, this has been in the news recently, but I actually came to this idea from hearing a story through of all things that Bob Saget, who just passed away. He told a story of working on a quantum leap with Scott Bakula. And I couldn't believe when I heard this, there was a scene where Bakula was fighting with a stunt person. And Bakula was supposed to push the gentleman onto a table. And they're shooting the film. And he grabs the stunt man. He starts to push him. And then he tosses him instead to the side. And everyone was like, what happened? It turned out that there was a knife on the table somehow sticking up. The, the oddest story. And Bakula saw this just as he's like starting the momentum. And his mind was, I guess, clear enough to figure out, whoa, I've got to shift this guy over here. And you think about this because, look, all, all this stuff involves human beings. And human beings are flawed. We are flawed. It's one of the things that sometimes is romantic about us even. But when I hear that there's, you know, just a few people in charge of the safety, it always makes me wonder, 
this is something that everyone has to be involved with, period. If you if you see something, you've got to say something. So because I've never been on a set or anything like that, how much say does an actor have to kind of sort this out? Oh, well, a lot. If you're involved, I mean, you have to take care of yourself and stay and do your job. And, and you know, now the makeup artist, on that show that was putting the squib on my, the special effects guy was, he was really the guy because I was new to this and I was young and he was like, Hey, uh, you know, they should not be keeping you here. And he was the one that raised a stink for me because he said that wasn't, you know, cool. And so sometimes, you know, it takes another actor, like, you know, um, I had Amy Yazbek raise this, you know, tell me that I needed to raise a stink about pasties in Workaholics when I went topless. And, you know, Amy Yazbek was married to John Ritter and, you know, and she was the one that, you know, kind of was like, you need to call your agent. And I was like, okay. And so I did what Amy Yazbek said because Amy Yazbek was a series regular and she was supportive in me doing that. So I think that, um, you know, we have to look out for each other. I can say that, you know, um, it was all a shock to us, the recent thing that happened and about the shooting, because when you've been on sets with guns, it's very controlled. I mean, you know, when I was on Resident Evil Extinction, only one person handled that gun. And when he gave me that gun, he opened it up. He showed me that no bullets were in there. He shut it. He gave it to me. I was not allowed to set it down. And in between each take, that same person would take the gun out of my hand and then put it back and show me each time. Right. It was very controlled and very careful. And so I was shocked when, you know, what happens is like when people get lazy on a set, you know, and don't do their job. Right. It, it's really important. So as an actor, if anyone ever hands you a gun, you know, you always need to demand that they show you inside. They you know, that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. But so much stuff now is being done non-union and on limited budgets. What happens is those things get overlooked and then people die. And so you can't have that, you know. So I think, you know, it's. um I Mila Jovovich was an actress that I have a lot of respect for. And when I did Resident Evil, she did several of her own stunts and, you know, very careful, very, I mean, it was Mila. They were very careful with her, but I think it's really, really important to, to always be careful because you're, you're, you know, you are on a live set and there are guns and knives and explosives and all kinds of stuff. And so it it can be very dangerous. So you have to be really, you have to self-check and be awake and alert, you know, and it says a lot about Scott Bakula. He was awake and alert, right? And he was in the scene and he saw it and he made an adjustment, which I would have been like, here's like, you know, a year's worth of Starbucks. I would have given him a gift of like, I don't know, a lot because that's, he saved his life. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's and and being I mean, there's in some ways something that I see a lot today is we are losing a bit of our nuance for language. And the reason why that's important is because there's a very big difference between being assertive and forthright about something and being nasty and mean. It's not nasty and mean for someone to say before you touch this gun, I'm going to do this, this, and this, or you're not getting it, period. That's not mean. That's saying, I want to make sure that we're all clear that this happens. And it reminds me of, because I, I love I love any kind of stories. I love stories about stories. And I had learned something just recently about one of my favorite films, Aliens, where the gentleman who played, is that one of your favorites too? You like that one? Oh, the gentleman who played Apone, he, I had just learned, he, you know, he was the one who was running the military unit. I just learned that he was, a, had a military background, very high up, was very familiar with all this stuff. And he took charge on the set when the actors were holding guns. 
he was he would make sure you never under any circumstances i don't care what they say point this thing at one of us you just don't do it and there were times when they would forget the actors and they're humans they're not doing it on purpose they would forget and they would like wield the gun around and apparently he would be very much in their face you don't do that again period and in my head, I'm thinking you could take that a couple of ways. You could take that as, you know, who are you to be so, you know, like that? Or you could say, I'm so happy that you're here <laughs> because you're going to try to keep us safe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think that part of the issue is that um, actors are kind of thrown to the back of the bus, thrown into the trunk of the car thrown to the corner like the abused wife or something, right? And and actually, there's only one person you can't make a TV show or a movie or a play without. It's an actor. And yet we become these like third-class citizens. And so uh, actors are told, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, right? And so you only have to be in New York, London, LA, wherever you are, for about a year to be fully ensconced in the straitjacket of everything you're not supposed to do. Um, so one of my jobs as working with actors is teaching them how to stand in their value and to stand in their strength and to stand as the boss that they are, right? And, and that's not to be a diva, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, um, it's not to be that, but it's to be able to say, this is what I want, and this is what I need, and this is what I need you to do for me, right? And, and so what ends up happening is actors have this, they come at their career as this little scared rabbit, and so they get yelled at, and it's like, you know, it just, it's, 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 you know, so they have to learn, I teach them how to stand in the value of who they are. And, and, and be a boss and, and, and speak with integrity and yes, speak with respect, but don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Right. And, and that is something that is not taught in acting schools. And because like, you know, when no one teaches an actor that they're an entrepreneur. And so, you know, they're not taught that they're in charge. They're taught to get an agent. Right. And then the agent becomes in charge. But that's like the craziest thought in the world, because an agent is a commission based person. Right. They work for us. They work for us. And they and I remember when I hired my first business coach that didn't know anything about acting. She said, wait a minute, stop, Valerie. She said, are you telling, she goes, so you pay for everything, right? You pay for your acting classes, your business coaching, your headshots, your resume, your acting classes, your uh, audition setup, your audition equipment. You pay for all that, right? Yes. But an agent is the only person that can sell you. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, that makes no sense. And I'm like, Exactly. <laughs> it makes no sense. It's like, so I always explain that an agent is like a dishwasher in a restaurant. It's not derogatory. If your restaurant is busy, you need a dishwasher. If your restaurant isn't busy, you don't need a dishwasher. Right. And so, you know, you do need them when you're busy because you need them to negotiate your contracts and communicate with the filmmaker. I'm, I'm doing a film right now and they're trying to do reshoots on it. And I had to dye my hair for it. And they, they keep picking different dates. I mean, you know, it's outside. So there's been snow and things like that. So I understand, but it's like, I, I come, come the next month, I'm not going to keep this upkeep of my hair up. I mean, they paid to have my hair changed colors, but now I'm like, uh, okay, I got other things I got to do and I don't want to keep my hair. So I put that, my agent is the person that communicates with them. This is the, it. this is the final line. He holds the line for me that I tell him I want him to hold for me. Not the line he makes up because of why ever I tell him what line and he's a great communicator. I have a great agent. Right. Yeah. And so that's what you need an agent for. But if you're not busy, you don't need one. Yeah. And this is a good segue into talking about the business 
actors fast track. And I want to enter enter into this as well through actually something in in your book, Rule Breakers, which you you say it's not magic or being found that builds your success. Work launches your career. So tell us what what is one aspect of work then that young actors maybe overlook or undervalue? Number one, sales, right? They wait in this long line to get an agent to sell them, right? Which is ridiculous because if they haven't gone out and actually looked for work and gotten work and figured out how to sell themselves and do that on a regular basis, then they don't have anything to give the agent to sell, right? I mean, maybe if you went to Juilliard or Yale or something or RADA or something like that, yes, maybe. And But I mean, I know plenty of people that went to Juilliard and Yale and still you know, didn't get a career. So it's not a guarantee, but you, but the number one thing is that you should be selling yourself looking for work. I always describe it as this, if like my career is a, again, a restaurant, most actors I know have the doors locked, right? Not letting any customers in the customers being directors, producers, and writers and yes, casting directors, but mostly directors, producers, and writers. Those are the people that are actually the decision makers. They have the doors locked. They're not letting any of those people in. They've got their butt turned to the door and they're back in the kitchen going, you manage the French fries, you agent the hamburgers. Wait, I need a new logo. That's my headshot, right? And so they're spending all this time inside the restaurant. But ultimately, if the restaurant isn't selling food, they're not going to be in business very long. So if you aren't selling yourself as an actor on a regular basis with or without, like I just had this new client that I started working with yesterday that is the lead in a Ryan Murphy production. He doesn't have an agent, right? He doesn't have an agent. I have tons of people, right? Now, at some point working with me, we might say, let's go look for an agent. You know, let's bring someone on because your restaurant is busy and you need a dishwasher. But this is the problem. Like the focus becomes getting the agent and literally everyone that says they do what I do. That's what they teach you. You can go hire someone. I talked to this one girl. She's like, well, I've been working with so-and-so for a year on my plan and my package so I can get a really great agent. I'm like, well, what if you don't get an agent? And she'd never thought of that, right? And I, and I thought, why are you doing that? Like that should be something that you spend 10% of your time doing. 90% of your time should be building relationships with directors, producers, and writers. And it's, it's funny too, because we don't think about it until you said it out loud. Because I, I, even I had heard that, you know, what's the first thing you do? Get an agent, right? But if you think about what really happened, let's say out out the mouths of babes here, right? Because these young people who build these tremendous platforms on social media, and it's all selling themselves, who they are, their brand, let's say, right? And every so often you'll see these young people, they'll get roles, on things and movies and this and that, and they don't have an agent. It's because they have sold themselves. They've branded themselves. And like you said, you're not anti-agent. There's a tool that they serve a very specific purpose in this actually. And so you might recommend that to them at a certain point. It's time for you to actually look into this, you know, getting an agent. Yeah. And, you know, and like who got signed in the last two years? Um, uh, by CAA and the top agents in the world, TikTok stars, that's who got signed, right? And and I have a client um, in London who uh, uh, her platform is Black Lives Matter and she's, um, and she's built her following to 100,000. She got a relationship with uh, Tommy Adiem, uh, the author of Chil- Children of Blood and Bone. She got a relationship with her and now Tommy just got signed by CAA. And so she's doing a TED talk and my client is going to be the person that's shooting her the questions on the TED talk. 
So last week, my client doesn't have an agent. Last week, CAA called her. She had a conversation with CAA because she's going to be, right? And so she's going to go from no agent to CAA. And then TikTok asked her to um, develop a, um, a show for them. Um, and she did that. So she has all these things happening. So she says to me the other day, I think maybe I should try to get an agent now. I'm like, yeah, maybe we should. And we're going to talk about that when I'm in London next week. So, you know, maybe we will do that. You know, that it is time for that. I think it's better to go get an agent when you go, okay, now I need an agent, right? That's, that's the time, but so much time is wasted in looking for an agent. Absolutely. It's, it's, it is this, false narrative that's been sold down to actors and in every acting school. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I just had someone hire me and, you know, she went to every other person that does what I do supposedly. And, and all of all they did was help her try to find an agent and she's still in the same place that she was. So now she's like, Oh, maybe I should do something different. Yeah. Maybe you should do something different. Because actually, if you look at, and you know, I have a ton of star friends. I've been a working actor my whole life and I know, and if I look at all of those people and I save articles and I read things, every one of them to get where they got to broke the rules and got relationships with their customers. That's how they got to where they got to. Every one of them. We, we began this, this conversation talking about the human element and I and I want to merge that with the business element here at the end as well. What are your what are your human goals for starting this business, right? Because I, I I'm not people oftentimes people can be very cynical. I hate cynicism with a passion. And I know that having just spoken with you about this, I know that there's there's the business side, but then there's also a legitimate human concern here for the actors, for the people involved. So what what are your human goals for the business? What would you like to do really with them? Well, I'd like to change the way actors do business. I would like to change the 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 thought process of of and the belief system around what it is okay for us to do and what it means. Like I had an agent, I had a client get yelled at by their agent because they pitched themselves to a casting director who in turn complained to the agent and the agent instead of, and the agent had that opportunity in that moment to turn the situation around. If they had been a better business person, they could have said, you know, I'm sorry, my client upset you, but as you know, he's a very good actor and he has booked a lot of things. And I think that he would be great in this project. So why don't we set up an audition for him? They could have done that in that moment in time, but instead they reacted and then they reacted on their client. So one of the things I teach my clients is like, if someone calls you and starts yelling at you, you always stop them and you say, I'm going to stop you right there. You're clearly upset. And so why don't you go somewhere and calm down and then let's have an adult conversation because I'm an adult and you're an adult and we're in business together. And if you want to continue to be in business with me, you need to speak to me with a modicum of respect, right? So I want to teach them to have self-respect and stand in their value. And therefore, if I change enough, we will change the way business is done. I don't have a lot of hope for unions, right? And so I need to to teach an actor how to be able to ask for what they want and get for what they want and stand in their value. I mean, I have a story which I can't really tell you, but basically I had a client here shooting a very important movie. It's under NDA. That's why I can't tell you. And she made a demand that they change an aspect of that script. And she made that demand to one of the most powerful female producers in the world. And she risked being set on a plane and sent back to London by doing that. But it was that important to her. That's the kind of actor I want to have that's not afraid to ask for what they want and say, hey, this this line in this script has racism in them. And I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say it because it it doesn't ring true to me and stood by that. And I was even scared for her, but she did it and she succeeded. You know, so I feel like that's for me, 
the bigger hope is to give these people their their value back and understand that they're important. I mean, you know, I see a lot of times on social media, you know, uh, people make fun of actors and, you know, say terrible things to us, but we all know who we depended on the last two years, right? We know who we depended on. We depended on entertainment, right? And who was de- delivering that entertainment? Actors, right? And so we are very important to the the humanity and the uh, the light in any society. We also, when we have value in our life, have the ability to change something and speak out about something and change, you know, the way people think about something because people admire us, right? So on the same level. So that's, I guess, the greater human thing for me is, is that, is, is really, and the greater human thing for me is all, is, is in general with human beings. It's like, don't get hung up by the no's. Everyone gets a million no's and two yeses into anything you do in your life. And so, you know, you can't be hung up on the no's. And so you have to, you have to go keep your eye on your lane, go for your dharma, go for your dream, go get what you want to get in your life and treat people with respect period. It's not really that hard. Well, I can't think of a, of a better way to, to close this out than, than those words. Those are fantastic. Valerie, where can people learn more about your business, your work, and learn just more about you? Well, okay. So we have this really cool challenge coming up, which is a free challenge. It's February 28th through March uh 11th, I believe it's a two week challenge and it's free. And that's at the actors challenge.com. Um, and it's a free challenge. You just have to sign up for it. So we're going to really get actors motivated to take a challenge each day and get something done on their acting career each day. We all set goals for ourselves and this is to get them done. That's the first thing. And, you know, they can just go to actorsfasttrack.com and they can, um, you know, get on my calendar or, um, you know, reach out to us. Um, to, uh, if they want to talk about how we might be able to help them get the career of their dreams, we'd be happy to get on the phone with them. And, you know, we're not always a match for everyone. And so we, we like to get on the phone with our actors and different actors or on zoom and see if they're the right match for us. And we talk to them. And so that's it. That's fantastic. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Joe, thank you for having me. It was really fun. You asked great questions. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Valerie Hubbard. If you did, make sure to hit that subscribe and or follow button and leave a kind comment and or rating where applicable. And please feel free to share the episode with a friend on your social media accounts as well. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground and have a great day.